Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Welcome to Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli security experts and practitioners. And our guest uh, today, as uh, was last time, is retired General Danny Atom, a senior officer in the Israeli Defense Forces and chief of Mossad. Thank you. Thank you. We talked about uh, your service uh, in uh, Sayyid Matkal in the 60s and early uh, 70s. And then uh, you uh, moved from uh, Sayyid Matkal, the most uh, prestigious elite unit uh, in the IDF, to the armor, uh, which is, of course, uh, more vast, uh, has uh, many more uh, units uh, under its auspices, uh, perhaps more more mundane, grayer, but the force which usually decides wars. And when you did it in 1972, uh, right after you participated uh, in the operation uh, to rescue the hostages on the Sabina uh, airliner at uh, Lod Airport, now Ben-Gurion Airport, you didn't know that uh, a year later or so you will find yourself in war. Uh, I didn't know. What, what Nobody happened? knew. So what happened? Was, what happened? It was uh, a big during... surprise. What happened uh, was that uh, uh, after accomplishing uh, all the, the briefings uh, of the operation, where we rescued the hostages, about 100 uh, hostages uh, that were on the hijacked plane, uh, aeroplane. I went to the officer's school and I started to study armor from bottom, bottom to up. And I participated in all the courses that youngsters, much young, younger than me, I was then a major at the age of 28. I came from the most prestigious unit and I had... To, to get uh, uh, with uh, all the others. No special uh, no, no treatment? No special treatment. I, I, I insisted not to, ex- to, uh, not to receive any special treatment. You took off your, your rank? I badge. took my ranks and uh, I went uh, through all the stages, uh, including uh, the course of tank commanders, the course of uh, platoon leaders, in the armor, uh, I worked uh, in the mechanic shop of the armor in order to know better all the piece and, uh, pieces. And uh, Did you later find that it paid its dividends? Of course. No doubt that it paid when I was a company commander. And I insisted to be a company commander. Even though I was uh, 28 years old, I was uh, a father to my first uh, child, out of five that uh, were born later. And uh, yes, it paid because as a company commander, for instance, I had to be the best one knowing all the, all the pieces and all the parts of the tank. And uh, yes, I, I, uh, I uh, studied it uh, very seriously so that uh, no one of the young officers that were uh, un- underneath me, or were re- uh, reported to me, uh, felt uh, in uh, uneasiness while talking to me about uh, 
are more issues because I... Career armor officers always say that uh, esprit de corps and morale are not enough uh, for armor. They may be um, good for commando or infantry units, but tanks yeah. uh, need more than that. There's no doubt about it. You have to be professional. And to be professional is to understand also mechanically uh, the way uh, the tank is built and the capabilities of the tank and uh, many other uh, things which are related uh, to mechanics and not to tactics or, uh, or operational uh, thinking. Uh, in the war, uh, in the Yom Kippur war, all of us were totally under surprise. It uh, includes inter alia the, the uh, Israeli Defense Forces uh, general staff, and it went down up to the unit. I was then for only two weeks. I started two weeks uh, earlier my uh, assignment as deputy commander of a tank battalion of another, of another battalion at the same unit, at the same brigade, but another battalion, an adjacent battalion. And I knew on, uh, almost uh, no one in the battalion. <laughs> And, uh, on what front? On, in, on the Egyptian front. We were sitting uh, in the office of the commander. The, the uh, battalion commander is, uh, was uh, uh, Uzi uh, Lanzner. Levzur. Levzur today, yeah. And uh, we were sitting, all the staff of the, of the uh, battalion, because... Uh, we were called upon a day earlier due to the fact that uh, there was uh, some tension uh, building, uh, uh, built up uh, both in the, uh, uh, in the Egyptian front and uh, the Syrian front. But what uh, we knew from briefings of the uh, brigade commander that was Dan Shomron and briefings uh, from the division commander is that uh, the government, uh, and especially Golda Meir, that used to be the prime minister, is dealing uh, with the United States in order to avoid any war. And this was uh, one of the reasons why uh, the government did not accept uh, the recommendation of the chief of staff to enlist uh, uh, reservists, and uh, we were sitting, and all, all of a sudden, we heard uh, 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 noises of as if somebody bombing us. So we went out, and we saw uh, some uh, uh, some centers of both smoke and dust. We even did not uh, have the time to, uh, to, to, to understand what's going on, and all of a sudden we were attacked surprisingly by something like uh, 30, 40 uh, Egyptian aeroplanes. How far away from the Suez Canal were you? Uh, we were sitting uh, at... Uh, um, uh, at uh, the central, uh, the central uh, area, uh, which is uh, 
uh, which is, I think, uh, what was, uh, I think, uh, six, something like 60 kilometers. We were sitting something like, we were deployed like 60 kilometers from the, from the uh, Suez Canal. The system that worked there operationally was the following. There was one armor brigade that sits on the canal itself, and there was uh, the second uh, armor brigade that sits something like 60, 60 kilometers far away from the Suez Canal, and uh, the procedure was that once there is a war, the uh, brigade which is in the rear immediately uh, on wheels and uh, on tracks run in order to reinforce the forces which were uh, along the Suez Canal. The frontline brigade, which had only several dozen tanks, was dispersed along 120 kilometers of canal, yeah. where the Egyptians had five divisions to cross over between the outposts and the yeah. tanks. The, the brigade, which was uh, brigade number uh, 14, that later on I commanded myself, uh, was deployed all along those 120 kilometers with gaps, very, very uh, broad gaps, between each and every of the units, platoon or, uh, or company unit, and they had to defend, and uh, they started the fight uh, having something like uh, 100 tanks. This is the number that Brigade has, and 100 tanks facing something like 2,000 tanks. And then we reinforced them, and we became 200 tanks. After the first uh, day of the war, we, uh, of course, there were casualties from the beginning because, uh, firstly, there was a totally surprise. But wasn't, wasn't the problem, the tactical problem for you, you in the armored uh, forces, not tank versus tank, but tank versus anti-tank missiles? We didn't understand it at the beginning. We thought that we are going to uh, mainly fight against uh, tanks. And uh, we were running and rushing towards uh, our positions that were uh, planned already, pre-planned, uh, in order to face uh, the tanks, the assaulting tanks of the other side. And on the way, we, uh, we, we uh, were facing those uh, very small uh, squads of two to three uh, Egyptian uh, soldiers that operated uh, anti-tank uh, uh, missiles, guided missiles, uh, the Sagers, uh, made uh, by the Soviet Union. And uh, at the beginning, they caused the most damages of us after something like the 12 uh, hours, it was the night, we entered and we uh, achieved the front line at night time, and we were uh, fighting during night time. I think that after the first uh, 12 uh, hours of the war, uh, from uh, 33 tanks, our battalion remained with something like 20 tanks. 
we lost almost one third of uh, our force. And later on, while the war, while the war was going on, we even, uh, uh, during long period of times, we had in the battalion only 10 tanks out of only one third of the force. And this was the, de the, the, the destiny of many others because we suffered many, many casualties. Now, uh, you talked about the, the surprise because while there was some sort of alert, you didn't expect uh, the uh, Egyptian... Yeah, but the alert, uh, uh, I, I, I have to emphasize it. The alert was not really an alert because uh, we were not uh, told that uh, Egyptians are going to attack you at uh, two o'clock and even not at six o'clock uh, in the evening. Uh, they intend to. There are very, very intensive talks between the Israeli government and the American uh, government. And it looks as if those talks might Um, might 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 achieve a sort so a you, sort you, of a ceasefire. You were not in your tanks. You were not. We were not in the tanks. No, we were not. We were not alerted enough. We knew that uh, if something will happen, if at all, it will happen at six o'clock. But it happened at at two o'clock. Yes, but this is the surprise of October the sixth. Wasn't it a deeper cause, a complacency? born of earlier successes where, in 1967, the IDF routed the Egyptian army and won on three fronts in six days. Weren't all of you involved in this complacency to the extent that you knew that even if you were to be surprised, there will be no problem you are going to win? Firstly, it happened to be true because... Uh, I don't remember that uh, I suffered from such a complexity. I only remember that even during the most difficult hours, never ever cross a thought in my mind that we are going to lose. Never ever. And I was only a, a, a deputy commander of a battalion. Never ever. Even when we remained with uh, 10 tanks. And the others remained with the same number, uh, give and take. We never ever thought that the Egyptians, Egyptians will be uh, able to penetrate our uh, line, even though it was not really a line. It was a bunch of several tanks in each point. And they did not. They did not. We blocked them. And then we counterattack. If they ever intended to go further into well, Sinai. Well, uh, you know, uh, they intended at least uh, to reach uh, what we call the, the artillery. The arti no, mm -hmm. the, 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 the artillery road. Second line. Yeah, second line. And they even were not able to do it, even though. And uh, uh, so for the first 48 hours... We, the sending forces, were alone, suffering a lot of casualties. And only after 48 uh, hours, the reserve units started to arrive. And when they arrived with all the reserve divisions and all the reserve uh, tanks, uh, brigades, we, uh, I, 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 then, I then fully uh, uh, felt 
that uh, we are going to win. Generally, Tom, uh, we only have some 10 minutes or so to speak about uh, Itzhak Rabin and the Mossad and, and uh, several other topics. So uh, moving on from the Yom Kippur War, you decided to stay on as a career officer and uh, you stayed in, in armor, um, commanding yes. a battalion, a brigade. A division. A division. And then uh, you were appointed the chief of uh, research and development uh, for the military. Why, yeah. why we had that uh, position? Well, I tell you, it's also, it's also a, a story uh, which is very interesting. Uh, I wanted to continue and uh, to be a combatant. And to, uh, then I was a, a colonel. I just uh, finished uh, to command a standing armor brigade, brigade number 14. And uh, I wanted uh, to become a division commander, even if this division is going to be division of reservists. But a brigadier general's position. But, and, uh, yeah, and a brigadier general. And uh, then uh, the chief of staff, Raful, approached me and uh, asked me to be the chief of uh, research and de development of the entire military, the entire armed forces. And I asked him, why me? And he said that uh, he decided that uh, he, he does not want any longer that the chief of uh, uh, ground forces, no, the chief of the entire armed forces, not only ground forces, for research and development will be another uh, engineer that grew, that, that, that uh, all his years spent in research, in research and development issues. He wants somebody that comes from the field, a commander that will be able to representative the needs you of, know, the, you of know, the soldiers. You, you know what echo one hears. In our first talk, you told me and the audience about Colonel Avraham Anan, yes. who said that it is better to teach uh, exactly. people who, who do not look oriental. And, like and, and Raful thought probably the same. What he really wants, wanted to achieve is that the chief of uh, research and development will be somebody that understands the needs of the users, not, the, not necessarily the engineering uh, processes and uh, solutions, but the needs. Uh, so he will be speaking with the engineers. User-friendly. Uh, but he asked also to find somebody that not only had an, uh, uh, an experience as a commander, but somebody also that understands something in physics and mathematics. And I was almost the only one with a bachelor degree in the BSC in physics and mathematics. And I was chosen. But you had uh, an acquaintance uh, in your Sayat Matkal days uh, named Benjamin Netanyahu. And he recommended you to the uh, Minister of Defense, the incoming Minister of Defense, Moshe Ahrens, as uh, his military secretary. Uh, what was your relationship with Netanyahu at the time? Well, there were no relations. And uh, I think that the story about uh, Netanyahu recommending me to be the military advisor, uh, military secretary to the then uh, uh, defense minister is, is, uh, is not true. 
But, uh, it's, but it's a good story. Don't, it's a good story, don't exactly. I think that the one that recommended was, uh, was uh, Mendy, Menachem Merom, that came, Meron, that came with Arendt and became the, the director general of the Ministry of Defense, and he was the one that recommended. I didn't know Arendt. I never seen him previously. He asked to see me. He looked at my CV. He saw that I have also some uh, experience in uh, computer science, physics, and mathematics. And he said, you will be, you, you, I, I, I choose you to be my, uh, my military. He had uh, an aerospace engineering background. Yeah, he was a professor of, of engineering. So um, you served with Arons for a year and a half or so, and then um, because of the uh, political turnaround, Itzhak Rabin came in, and this started your relationship with Rabin, which later turned into uh, a second appointment uh, for you. Uh, As his uh, military, military secretary. When he was also prime minister in addition to being... When he was elected uh, as a prime minister in the year of 1992, uh, I was then the commanding general of the central command, and he asked me to come and to be again his military advisor. So try, please, um, in two minutes or so, to sum up his qualities of leadership as a former military man, but now a statesman. Well, I think that, uh, and I worked with many prime ministers, Yitzhak Rabin was uh, the best one. Uh, I think that he is the prototype of a prime minister that Israeli needs and unfortunately does not have today. He was, uh, on one hand, uh, highly experienced. He was a brigade commander in the War of Independence, and he understood uh, what does it mean uh, to be in a, in, a, in a zone war or a war zone, losing uh, people which uh, are under your command. He was very honest. He was uh, very straightforward. Uh, he never lied. He understood that he had to work for the people and not that the people have to work for him. You know, this is the way Americans describe George Washington. Yes. Yes, but this is true. It was true. From very early in the morning until very late at night, he worked only in order to achieve goals that uh, he described as national goals, which made Israel a better place to live. He was uh, also the one that uh, initiated the peace process with the Palestinians, Jordanians, Syrians, and Lebanese. Unfortunately, only the peace process with uh, Jordan come to be true, but uh, not, uh, not the others. My uh, personal opinion is that if Yitzhak Rabin wouldn't, uh, wouldn't been uh, uh, assassinated, we uh, probably could have a different relations and much better ones with all those that I mentioned. Uh, and I think that uh, the fact that uh, today there are more and more uh, Arab and Muslim countries which are ready to uh, sign either a normalization agreement or a peace agreement with Israel, the, the, the beginning of the process started during the time of Yitzhak Rabin, that he was the 
the, the, the second prime minister after Begin that, uh, that signed the peace treaty with Egypt, that signed a peace treaty with the second Arab country. Now, Rabin's uh, successor, Shimon Peres, uh, appointed you uh, Mossad chief. But before you um, took your position, uh, there was another political turnaround in Israel and Netanyahu became uh, prime minister. Is it important that the Mossad chief be uh, the prime minister's loyal confidant? Uh, to a certain extent, yes. Yes. Uh, he, he, I, I would say so. Uh, it is more important that uh, the appointee will be capable to, uh, to do the job. It is uh, convenient that it will be somebody that you have a mutual uh, understanding with. But I think that the, f- the first uh, characteristic is that the one that you as the prime minister appoint Uh, is capable, is capable to carry out the very, very difficult and sensitive missions of the Mossad. Now, from time to time, especially uh, over the last uh, several years, uh, where there is um, an extrovert sort of uh, Mossad chief uh, that uh, neither you nor uh, most of your colleagues uh, used to be, uh, people hear more and more about the exploits of Mossad. But... Uh, how um, really is the public informed? What sort of percentage still lies undercover? 99% is undercover. And I think that uh, to a body, which is a secret body, like the Mossad, that also, you know, until uh, even, even today, uh, generally speaking, one that serves in the Mossad, either he or she, They are not allowed to tell uh, their friends other than the nuclear the nucleus uh, family that it, that they work in the Mossad even that and, and the same applies so the, to the Shabak so this is the best cover if someone tell you they work for Mossad uh, exactly you guess that they do they not. are not they are not exactly but now nowadays it became not as strictly as it used to be. And today people, especially of course, after retiring, it was then forbidden, even after retiring, to say that you were working or serving in the Mossad. And actually, uh, Dani Atom, you were the first serving Mossad chief whose identity was disclosed while... While, uh, while, while was uh, pointing. Retired General Dani Atom, uh, formerly head of Mossad and uh, major general in the Israeli Defense Forces, military secretary to Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres, uh, Moshe Arens, and then uh, assistant to Ehud Barak. Thank you very much for this conversation. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.